Hey, good morning, Reach Montreal and everybody else joining us online. We're so glad that you're here and you're able to be with us this week as we actually wrap up a series that we've been doing for the last eight weeks called Scripture, God's Word, Our Lives. Before we jump in and finish up, let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you that we have this time, that we're able to come together, that we're able to worship you through your word, that we're able to hear your word and your words. And I just pray that you would apply it to our heart and our minds and that we would be moved to worship and moved to see you more clearly. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been joining us, uh, last week we looked specifically at the question, tried to answer the question of what should the Bible do to us when it's read, studied, understood correctly? What is the desired impact the Bible should have on us? And we looked at it and saw that the answer scripturally is wisdom, that the Bible is wisdom literature, that it should actually do something to lead us in the way of wisdom and away from the way of foolishness. Now, this week as we finish, what I want to do is going to just lean into some of the nuts and bolts of Bible reading, of Bible interpretation, and look specifically at a few of the best practices for how you and I can and should read and study our Bible and offer just a few guidelines to do that. So we're going to move quick. We're going to cover a lot, but it's going to come at you as kind of practical bullet point stuff as we close out this series and continue as a church. And even as those are just kind of checking the Bible out and, and exploring Jesus can come to the Bible and study and read it well. Um, let me remind you of the definition that we've been using of the Bible as we've gone through this series. Here's what we've been looking at. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that tells one unified story leading us to Jesus. And what we've done over the last eight weeks is just kind of unpack different areas of that definition and try to just kind of boil it down and understand it. Um, The Bible is a complex library of literature. That means that every time we come to the Bible and read the Bible, or any time we even talk about studying the Bible, what we're actually doing is biblical interpretation, okay? Or it's a word that we've been using, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is really just a technical term for the art and science of biblical interpretation. It comes from a Greek word that that actually means interpret or translate. So everyone interprets the Bible, Whether you are a believer, a Christian, or a non-Christian, we all interpret the Bible because we can't read something and not interpret it. Uh, This is a deeply personal, uh, multi-layered process where we read and interpret and we have rules, even if they're unspoken or unknown rules, when we come and we interpret and apply any form of information. No one simply just reads their Bible literally. We've been looking at that throughout the series. Instead, we all interpret the Bible. Literarily, we look at it and we come at the Bible with a complex lens. So we don't just see the Bible uh, as plain. We actually see the Bible through a lens that is made up of several complex factors, including personal ones, kind of presuppositions and personal experiences, cultural and historical ones, kind of our cultural moment, our, our worldview, kind of the ethos of the day impacts us as we read the ethos of the Bible. Uh, and we also bring kind of assumptions and questions and different things towards the Bible as we read it. So the point there is just that everyone is a theologian. A theologian is just someone who studies God. As soon as you and I say God is like, or I don't believe in God, or uh, the Bible says, fill in the blank, what we have just done is we've just done theology. We have just done hermeneutics, right? Even if we don't think that that's true. So the question isn't, 
Um, well, I, do I do theology or not? Do I interpret the Bible or not? The question is then, how can we interpret it correctly? How can we be and learn to grow into good theologians? Theologians that read the Bible in its terms and on its terms and actually come out and understand the Bible correctly and apply it truthfully. That is the goal as we read the Bible. And we're students of the Bible for our entire life. And you, you and I have different relationships to the Bible. I've started this series asking you what your current relationship is to the Bible. And our relationship through our life and different life seasons with the Bible changes too. And so it's important to understand that we are all students of it and that we should be, that there should be a posture where we come to learn from the Bible. We come to ask questions of the Bible, but that we also allow the Bible to ask questions of us. So correct biblical interpretation is a view that we come to the Bible and understand the Bible in two ways. First, literarily, that it is literature that it's written in human language. And that means that we take into consideration grammar and linguistics and context and culture, all of those elements. So literarily, but also theologically, that the Bible is God's word to us, that it is a book, a a collection of books made into one book for us that tell us about God. Primarily speaking, the Bible is not about you, me, history, Israel. It's actually a story about the work of God. His character, his commands, his heart, his mission, his purpose. So good biblical interpretation, just to boil it right down, has to take into consideration that when we come to read the Bible, anytime we do, that we're reading it literarily and theologically. Literarily as human terms and theologically in God's terms, okay? Watch what Paul says to a younger Timothy about this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says to Timothy, remind them, speaking of the church, of these things and charge them before God not to argue about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Watch this, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent, silly babble debates, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. So that's like cancer, it'll spread like a disease. Notice what Paul stresses here, that there's a right handling of the word of truth, that good hermeneutics, good biblical interpretation, good understanding of the Bible leads to a good reading of the Bible, a good life lived in light of the Bible on its terms and in its terms. Whereas the flip side of that is also true. A faulty hermeneutic is actually destructive. A poor reading of the Bible is actually destructive to the message of the Bible, to ourself and to others, to those, to, to the hearers, Paul says. And that's really important because not every interpretation of the Bible is on the same playing field. That there are good interpretations and there are poor ones. There are helpful, truthful, correct interpretations and there are false interpretations. And this is exactly why the New Testament is full of warnings against false teachers and false teachings. They were already around in the first century church and they are still very much alive today, especially given the internet and some of the platforms that different people have. Everyone's opinion and interpretation of the Bible is just kind of taken, weighed against another, and then we're like, "Eh, I guess, right? But there are good and poor interpretations of the Bible. 
Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is in Acts 17, there's a, a group of Jews that are called like noble and they're the Bereans and they're commended in Acts 17 for examining scripture daily to see whether what Paul was saying was true. See that relationship there? Where even the apostle Paul is rightfully under scrutiny about the way that he handles the word of God the way that he handles the word of truth. And just like Paul, any teacher, any interpretation, any reading of the Bible needs to be subjected to examination and corroboration with what the Bible actually says. So I preach to you week in and week out as your pastor, as your teaching pastor, as I come and open up scripture. If you walk away sermon after sermon and go, yeah, that sounds good. Instead of going and actually studying scripture to make sure that what I am saying lines up with a good handling and interpretation of the word of truth, then you are also in a spot that that could be potentially dangerous. Your and my interpretations of the Bible are are not infallible. They're fallible. That means that you and I will misinterpret the Bible sometimes. We will. And there are different safeguards that we're going to see this morning that can help us handle the word of truth well. So I just say that to say, there are right, good, and true interpretations of the Bible. And there are also bad, wrong, and false interpretations of the Bible. So hermeneutics, biblical interpretation, can really be boiled down to three different steps of how we read. I'm going to hit these really quickly for you. Um, and there's three main steps. This is like seminary boiled down into three steps for you. And then we'll give a couple practicals as we end, all right? First step in interpretation in hermeneutics is to ask the question, what does this text say? So this is observation. You come to the text, you come to any passage, whether you're reading a psalm or you're in the gospels or you're reading Revelation. You just look at the text. Before you jump to any meaning or interpretation or application, you start with observation. What does this text say? This is kind of the who, what, where, when, and why questions of the text, where we're just really looking at it at a plain surface level, and we're saying, what is this saying? Uh, Who wrote this? Why did they write it? What was going on? What is the historical and biblical context of these texts? If I'm reading Genesis or I'm reading Philemon, there are very different historical and cultural contexts. So I'm asking, what does this text say? And how does it interact with and relate to the context around it? Um, What's the main point of this text? That's a really good question. Looking for specifically um, repeated keywords. What is this text actually saying? And why is it stressing certain things by what it's saying? Also, what is this text doing? Is it a command? Is it an observation? Is it a story? Is it a question being posed to the reader or to the hearer? Those are very, very important. And I would just say here, when you read the Bible, as you're sitting with the text saying, what does this text say? This is why it's so important to choose a Bible translation in your language, English, French, Armenian, whatever it is, Choose a translation that you like and you understand. I don't know why we've kind of become enamored with translations over, over history that ultimately are, are old and they're outdated. And then it, what ends up happening is we go and read some of these older translations and they can be good, they are good, but we read them and they're not even in our words. So we have a hard time understanding what it says and then we're left not able to go and communicate it 
to communicate what it says to those who don't know what it says. So this is why it's important to choose a translation that you like and that you understand. If you're reading your English Bible or whatever uh, mother tongue language you choose and you're having a hard time understanding that translation, choose a different translation. And, and just really quickly, there are three different kind of um, types of translation or philosophies behind translation. The first are literal translations. And now these are translations that are word for word. They try to take the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts and they go word for word and translate them. Um, and they're sometimes called wooden uh, translations because it's taking the word and going word for word, making sure that there is absolute accuracy about the words from language to language. Examples of those would be the ESV, uh, the RSV, uh, the KJV, the King James Version, or the New King James Version. Um, those are all word for word literal translations. The second type of translation is a thought for thought. Now that focuses not on the words, but on the sense or meaning of the words of the original languages. And then it has a little bit more liberty to choose English words that are modern that still point to the accuracy of those original words. Some examples of those would be the NIV. I know many of you enjoy the NIV. The CSB, which is a newer translation, also is a a thought-for-thought translation. And the NLT, the New Living Translation, is also a really solid thought-for-thought translation. Um, I tend to use... Uh, a literal, especially for preaching and teaching, and I, I tend to gravitate towards thought for thought for my own personal devotionals because there seems to be something that gets at the heart because it's speaking in our words in our language. And then the third type of translation is called a paraphrase. Now this takes the thought for thought and kind of it's on steroids where it goes and it actually is an artistic or poetic retelling of the, the thought of every passage. Examples of this would be the message, or the message remix, um, and the good news translation. That this is actually focused specifically not on the original words, but on the thought and kind of ethos of the original words and the words of the audience, of the hearer. So it tends to be artistic. There's a little bit more freedom to use different um, phrases and terminology that would be more modern. Now, regardless of what translation you choose, it's just so important to always choose a translation that you like, that you enjoy, that speaks kind of to your heart and just kind of like pulls that out of you, that you can be drawn into it and that you actually understand. And this is why Bible scholars and linguistics experts are always remaking new updated translations of scripture. It's very important that we do because we need to learn how to speak God's word in words that are modern to people that have not heard it. So that's why it's so important to have new translations. Every, every couple decades, we, we tend to see a new translation pop up, and necessarily so. It's actually a very, very important thing, okay? Um, so that's the first step in, in biblical interpretation. What does this text actually say? Secondly, what does this text mean? Now we move into interpretation, where we started with observation. Now we move into interpretation. Notice, the question isn't, what does this text mean to me? Okay? Asking what a text means is not going to what it means to me. What do I feel about it? Interpretation looks specifically at what was the intent of the meaning of that text. So, what was the original author's intention in writing this? Okay? A text means what the author intended it to mean. And for us, with our definition of the Bible, we understand that there's human authors, but one divine author in scripture. So it's important to look at the human authors 
and say, hey, what was Paul saying? What was Ezekiel saying? What was Moses writing? What was Joshua doing? What, were, what was going on in their world as human beings from their perspective as authors? What was their intent in writing this? But then also the second layer to that is what is God's intent in inspiring this to be in scripture? What is the original intent of that? Uh, in seminary, this is drilled into you in hermeneutics and it's just a little phrase, a text can't mean what it never meant right? It can't mean what it never meant. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not new things to kind of unearth out of scripture, but what it does mean is that those new things can't contradict what the original intent was. That's very, very important, especially as we approach apocalyptic literature or prophecy um, or even the, the origin story in Genesis. So important to be able to look and say, what did this text mean so then we can understand what it does mean? How would the original audience have understood this? And then how does our audience here and now in modern life understand this? Um, It's also really important here to ask what kind of writing this is. And we've talked about this a little bit throughout the series, that there's many different genres, right? You and I don't read a text message, an email, and a poem the same way. We don't. Why? Because they're different genres. They're different literary forms that require different rules, that require different rules of interpretation. And so that's important. If Are we reading poetry? Are you reading wisdom literature? Are you reading apocalyptic? Are you reading a, a genealogy, which you don't read, you just skip, right? Are you reading a law code? Whatever it is, that's very important because it's in kind of the packaging of the type of text that we see the meaning of the text. Super important. So context is king. It's very, very important to have context because I would say almost every bad reading, almost every poor interpretation of scripture comes from taking a text out of its context and then just kind of plopping it anywhere or nowhere and then saying what that text means. Here's a couple examples out of scripture. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Out of context, you're like, okay, pick your swords up. Let's go. Whoever said that, it's Jesus, by the way. Uh, Let's go and do that. Okay. Another example. No one whose testicles are crushed shall enter into the assembly of the Lord. Okay. Uh, Disturbing, weird. Don't know why that's in the Bible, but context shows us why that's in the Bible. Last example. May the Lord strike you with with Egyptian boils and tumors, scabs and itch for which you will find no cure. Uh, Again, like what? Like that, that, but, but out of context, it's so easy to take that text, take those texts, pluck them out of where they belong and the original context and author's intent and take it out of the context of even the Bible and make it say something that it's not saying. And that happens all the time. And church, if you're a follower of Jesus and you belong to the church, let me tell you, this is so common today, especially in a post-Christian, post-Bible culture, where we just kind of cherry pick verses as skeptics or atheists, whoever it is, kind of lobbing um, an argument against the Bible, and then say, well, here's, look at this, look, look what the Christians believe, look at that text, look what the Bible says, the Bible says that, can you believe that? How can you love a God who says that, right? So it's very important that we, as students of scripture, understand that there are good, right, true interpretations of the Bible and poor, bad, unhelpful, destructive interpretations of the Bible. And most of the time that comes back to context. And why context is important is because it helps us kind of get down to the micro level, but it also helps us understand and flesh out the macro level story of the Bible. You and I can't appreciate a tapestry, uh, like a knitted tapestry by only looking at each thread on its own. It's the thread's location in the big picture that makes it beautiful. 
Similarly, with, with a, uh, a piece of painting, a piece of art, you can't, if you just zoom in on each of the small brush strokes, you miss kind of the beauty of the whole. And that's exactly what context does for us. It invites us into the whole. We need to read scripture. We need to understand scripture and interpret scripture in its context, both internally, meaning in its own internal unity. We need to understand the Bible and how it relates to other things in the Bible, but also externally. So historically, culturally, what were, what are those things, what were the things that were going on in, in Israel at that time? Why are those laws about purity there? What is it saying to the culture of that day? And then how can we take the principle to today? Those are so important as we interpret. And last, in this second uh, step of hermeneutics, look for hyperlinks. The Bible is full of hyperlinks. You know, on the internet, when you on a website and it has the blue link and it, it's a, linking you to another article or a blog post about this or whatever it is, or somebody said this, so go check out their work. The Bible does this all the time, everywhere. And it's connecting you to texts internally within itself. And it does it on purpose. We have to ask, as we read the Bible, as you're sitting with a psalm or as you're reading the gospels, you're reading one of Paul's letters or whatever it is, you gotta ask as you read and you look at observation, what does the text say? And then you get to what does this text mean? It's always great to ask the question, what other text does this remind me of? Are there any other passages that this is pointing me to? And then how can I follow that trail? Because the original author's text and content um, context helps us understand the meaning of those texts, okay? And third and finally, the third step to hermeneutics is we go from observation to interpretation. Then, of course, and this is where kind of the meat and potatoes are, it's application. What can I actually do in response to what this text says? How can I apply this text? How can we as a community, as the church, apply this text? Proper application of a text only comes from proper interpretation of a text. And so often we jump to application of what does this text mean to me? And we take a text that really shouldn't have done what we made it do. And then we're confused why we're not connecting with the word of God in the way that it was intended. Well, it's because we need to start with what does this text mean? And then we can move to what can I do with this text? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to us? How do we apply it and respond to it? Uh, The question of what does this text uh, call for as a response? That's an important question as we read. What does it confront in me? Does it... What is it challenging? How does it shape out a Christian worldview? What does it do to my thinking? How does it encourage me to think about X, Y, Z, whatever the value or the ethic or issue that is in that text? Um, Different texts can, can do so many different things to us and call us to respond in so many different ways, right? Uh, sometimes it's, it's just celebration and worship. You just read through some of the Psalms and Proverbs and, and wisdom literature, and you're just kind of bursting with celebration. You just want to respond to what that text is saying about who God is and what he has accomplished. Some call for confession and repentance, where we're just kind of like cut to the heart, and we're, we're, we're convicted at a deep level where we have to actually respond by repentance. And maybe that means going and talking to somebody and, and saying, you know what, I'm struggling with this. Can, can I invite you into this and, and step up my accountability and, and, and maybe stress, uh, strive towards holiness more, whatever it is, that there's repentance, there's confession. Uh, other texts will correct us. Just come out and say, yeah, that's wrong. Uh, this is right. Start to move towards what's right. And then we're invited to just allow God to empower us and fill us and move us towards what is right. And others actually move us to, to humility, to prayer, 
to generosity and stewardship. I mean, every time I see Jesus talk about something to do with money or stewardship, I'm convicted. Well, because we're not naturally by default good stewards. Some of us, you know, are giving to the church, are giving to different ministries. Um, we read texts on those topics and we're convicted and we're moved to do something about it and to become more generous as a people. Those are just a few examples of application, of how we can actually take what the Bible does say, observe it, understand what it means, interpret it, and then take it and apply it and, and look at specifically how I respond to it. All right, so with that lined up for us, let's just finish with a few helpful best practices on approaching the Bible. It's important as we come out of this series, what we've done is like, I think I've focused so much on on this series, not just on the different kind of uh, genres, different things like that, but I've, I've focused specifically on some of the things that are happening at the heart level. And I would just say, um, I didn't want to be redundant. So I would just say, if you are going to jump in to a proverb or something, or you're going to jump into Revelation, to jump into a gospel, uh, the website, The Bible Project, is an amazing resource for helping tell you and I what the rules are for those different books. And that's why I didn't preach through them, because The Bible Project has already done such a good job. So it's super helpful as a resource to do that. So I would just encourage you, anytime you go to the Bible, if you're unsure of what you're jumping into, there's three to six minute long videos videos on the Bible project that really help unpack that and really help locate you and I as we approach the Bible. So that's a resource. It's free online. Use it, abuse it. Okay. So best practices. Here we go. We'll hit as many as we have time for. Number one, and we've listened, we've, we've talked about this a lot throughout the series. Number one, when we read the Bible, look for Jesus. Okay. We've talked about this being a Christocentric right? Centered on Christ, reading of the Bible. Why do we do that? Well, because Jesus did. We've seen throughout the series that Jesus reads the Bible and interprets the Bible in light of who he is, in light of what he accomplishes for sinners. The purpose of the entire Bible is to bring us to and point us to Jesus, that God has actually been doing something redemptively across history to pursue sinners and rescue them. And he does it through Jesus. And the whole Bible finds its climax in the person and work of Jesus. So scripture is the means to the end of relationship with God, specifically through the work of his son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the job of scripture. So it's so important anytime we're reading scripture, anytime we're interpreting it, anytime we're applying it, that it does come back to Jesus. It is always only and repeatedly about the work of Jesus. So important. And it's, and it's so important because uniquely, Jesus didn't just show up as a religious teacher with words about God. He came as the word of God, meaning that the words of God in scripture point us to the true and living word of God, capital W, Jesus. And it says in John 1 that he the, the word actually became flesh. The word put skin on. That creator God steps into creation. That Jesus, as truly God, steps into creation as truly man to save men and women. That's the story of the Bible. And we need to understand that as we come at it at the smaller passages too. That this is the macro 30,000 foot up story of the Bible. This also means for us that the Bible does sometimes leave us with questions that are unanswered, and it does it intentionally. Why? Well, because the answers of those questions are in relationship with the one who has not only inspired the Bible, but has come into human history, and he's the one that has all the answers. 
So it actually invites us into relationship with the one who has all the answers. So the Bible, again, and we've done this throughout the series, not an answer book for us to just kind of inventory, go through and get every topic and text. Instead, it does answer a lot of our questions, but the ones that it doesn't answer, it ends up being a re- in, an in, invitation to relationship with the God who has inspired the Bible. Super important. Number two, uh, make Bible reading and study a daily priority and keep it simple. Prioritize and practice reading scripture. If you look at your daily life and your weekly rhythm and you just take stock of it, just take inventory. And I would encourage some of you, I know I have in the past, to do kind of a liturgical um, inventory of your week and look at your time. Look at how much, and and write it down. Like write it down in your phone, write it down in your journal. How much time goes to different things? Because in reality, it's not that we don't have time to read the Bible. Often, it's that we don't really know what to do with the Bible. And we know that when we come to the Bible, it's not just kind of a surface level thing, but that it's actually heart level stuff going on. So it's something that takes attention. It really does take focus. But if we don't prioritize it, we will never practice it. And what we do day to day is who we become. How you spend your day is how you spend your life. And so keep it simple. Don't jump into, I'm going to study the Bible for 40 hours a week if you can't even do four minutes, right? Start simple, but prioritize it and practice it. And especially read it when you don't feel like it. Especially read it when you don't feel like it. Because you and I don't practice something because we want to. We practice something so that we will want to. And that is the key in scripture reading. That is the key in getting into our Bible. And there's variety and freedom on how we do that. Even if it's just one uh, chapter at a time or one whole book in a big reading that you you sit and you read through the entire letter to to Ephesians uh, in 25 minutes or whatever it is. Memorization, meditation, all the different things we've talked about throughout the series that it's so important to prioritize and practice the reading of scripture, especially when we don't feel like it because that's what practice does. Literally, the definition of practice is that it's a repeated activity that I can do by direct effort that will eventually lead me to do something that I currently can't do. That's what practice does. So unless we actually prioritize this and practice reading our Bible, we will not be formed by the words of the Bible. And formation only comes through repetition. And every day you are formed by the things that you repeat, the rhythms that you Uh, repeat habitually that you have these things every day the habits that you do your phone is shaping you your 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 social media platforms are shaping you your workplace is shaping you your peers are shaping you we need the word of god to shape us and if there's one thing i want for us at the end of this series is for all of us to come away from this with a deeper appetite for scripture not necessarily nailing it, not necessarily having all of the answers of how we're gonna perfectly nail prioritizing it, but I want you to have an appetite to actually devour it, to to actually take it in, to meditate on it, to internalize it, to eat it as if our life depends on it because it does. Just like daily sustenance and food and water keep our bodies alive, the word of God is said to actually keep us alive and that's why Jesus stresses it over and over again. That's why Jesus says, man and woman cannot live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God because that's where life comes from because we drift, because we forget, because we believe false alternative stories and we need the truth. So 
for you as a follower of Jesus and for you who are even just checking Jesus out and checking the Bible out, it's so important to understand that without daily, regular, habitual reading of the Bible, of God's word, to remind us of who God is, what he says about you and me, that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are desired. Without that, without the habitual reading and reminder of that, we will believe other things. You will not grow. You will not be changed. You will not fight sin. You will not make a difference. You won't. And we need the word of God to bring us to God behind the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 Paul writes, we thank God constantly that when you received God's word, plural, the church, the community, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That the word of God goes in it, it, it does work. Like it works in us. It works at us. It, it answers questions, but it also questions our answers. That it It calls us on idols. It calls us on false definitions of who God is. It calls us on an identity that's built on other things and not him and and his glory. It does all of that. And it's the word of God that does work in believers. Okay, so so important. That's number two. Number three, let's keep going. Read and apply the Bible prayerfully. Do not read the Bible without doing it prayerfully. Don't read it without praying. Just don't. Before and after, don't do it. Why? Well, because prayer is our primary way of inviting God into our lives. That over and over again, and we don't have time, but over and over again throughout scripture, we see that God responds to prayer. And that most of the times in the book of Acts where God shows up and does something crazy in the early church, it's not that they were killing it, doing, doing awesome sermons, not that they had fog machines and lights and lasers and having the best service and, on the block, it's that they prayed. So it's so important that when we come to the word of God that we pray and invite God into our time so that we can respond to who he is and what he says. Without him being invited into the process, we're left just kind of floating around in an interpretation abyss where we can just come out of the, with, the, with whatever word we want based on what God said or didn't say. So it's so important. Never open your Bible without first opening your heart and mind to the Holy Spirit Because we can't rightly interpret and apply the word of God without the spirit of God. We can't. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. God's spirit throughout scripture is called the the helper. That he convicts, that he argues, that he comes and he, he, he comes and convinces our heart that we need God. Convinces our heart that there's something wrong. So there's something in us that's just kind of poking at our heart. There's this hunger that the Holy Spirit is constantly pointing to saying, I know where to find the answer. And this, the Holy Spirit is also called, said, we, is said to teach and bring us to remember all that God has said. That's in John 14. I love that. But if we come to the word of God and we don't invite the spirit of God, how are we supposed to come out with a clear, true, beautiful view of God? It won't, it won't work. It's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for individualism. It's a recipe for an interpretation that ultimately will not lead to life. Okay, And also just remember, and I, I hoped for us to do a series soon on, on the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart and mind, even when you're not feeling him. Even on days when you just want to kind of quit and walk away because you, you haven't heard a word from the Lord, or you haven't felt the spirit of God, that's not the compass by which we use to determine whether God is actually using his word and applying it to our life. 
the example that I, I always kind of think about is like a fire on a cold night. When you're kind of camping and it's a cold night, you don't feel the fire because of how cold the wind is or how the breeze is, but the fire is still doing what fire does. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And we need to trust God in how he impacts us and speaks to us and moves through us and that he does know best. And, and if there's seasons where you don't feel or, or kind of have words from God, it's just a commitment that we make to say, God, I know that you're at work because you promise in your word that you are. And that's faith. And that's just trusting in who God is and what God does. And it's beautiful. And God does not reject or push away the humble. And that's just such a humble posture to know that what God has said, what he has promises, he's, what he has promised, he's not gonna go back on. So make sure that you always read your Bible prayerfully. Four, got a couple more. Take your personality um, and your season of life into consideration. Um, <laughs> the way you approach your Bible, reading and study and personal devotions, needs to reflect your personality. Um, if you're an intellectual and you love the study aspect, that's going to change how you approach the Bible. If you're kind of an extrovert or an enthusiast or you love worship, that's going to change how you approach the Bible. If you're an introvert and you, you like books more than you like people, that's going to change how you read the Bible. If you're a visual learner, a more kind of auditory learner, that's going to change how you read the Bible. Take that into consideration. God, God made you. He created you. You don't need to be exactly the same as everybody else that you see on Instagram, kind of coffee or tea or chai and their picture of their Bible. Like You don't have to do that. You can do it in the way that God has created you. So your personality does come into consideration here on how you read the Bible, approach it, and study it. As long as you're prioritizing it and practicing Bible reading, that is the point. Also, taking into consideration your season of life. If you're a full-time mom of four, uh, if you're a dad, if you're single, if you're a young adult, if you're an empty nester, if you're retired, if you're a student, those seasons of life greatly impact the amount of time, energy, and focus that we have towards different things. How you read your Bible will be different based on your season of life, but it needs to remain a priority in every season. It might look different, but it also looks the same in that we're fighting for that being a daily, habitual practice and priority. Five. Number five, read your Bible with others just as much as you read your Bible alone. Now, this is probably the most important point I'm going to make um, this morning. The Bible is a library of books written by community for community. It has to be, and it is only rightfully understood and interpreted when it is studied, unpacked, understood, and applied in community. Okay, we need some course correction here in the West, in the Western church, because what, ha what has happened is private study of scripture has become primary. So quiet times, personal devotions have actually taken priority over community time. Okay, and it's not biblical. That's not at all. Now, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. And uh, it, it, personal, private devotion and study is very important. It is but not more important than being amongst the community in community, hearing and applying the word of God, okay? So in the West, quiet times have taken precedent and priority over community time. That is not the, the model and the pattern that we see in scripture at all. When we don't read, and this is why it's important, when we don't read and apply and interpret and, and, and take in scripture in community, it's so easy to see our private 
solo interpretations of scripture as the only way to understand it. And so we end up in a silo by ourselves, thinking, oh yeah, that's probably right. And what happens is, what can happen very quickly is we end up shaping scripture with whatever hobby horse we're riding at the time or something happening, happening culturally and we just go in and we start looking for things in the Bible. We start seeing things funny in the Bible based on a cultural moment or we have some like pet agendas that we have and, and we go into those things rather than letting scripture shape us collectively in community. You do misinterpret scripture. I do misinterpret scripture. We will. And this is why we need community. This is exactly why we need one another. And that counts for community alive and dead. We're part of a long historic process of of confessions and, and theology and doctrine and conferences and all sorts of things that from the early church, from the book of Acts to now, we're a part of this huge community, this cloud of witnesses. And even before that, the Old Testament covenant community. We're a part of that community. So it's so important to make sure that we're interpreting scripture in community, modern day, right here, right now, me and you in community together with diverse life experiences, ethnic backgrounds, languages, um, different maturity levels spiritually, different even um, education levels on the Bible. So important, but also within this larger community of the people of God within history and throughout history. So, so important. We need each other in this. And I think what's happened, especially in modern churches in the West, is that sola scriptura, the idea that scripture alone is our final kind of rule and authority on what is good, right, true, that we use it and that we come to it to bring us to God correctly, that sola scriptura has really just become solo scriptura. So instead of seeing scripture as scripture alone being the thing that brings us to God correctly and truthfully, we end up reading scripture alone by ourselves. And so sola scripture has become solo scripture, but it's not biblical. The right interpretation of the Bible belongs to the church as a whole, as a community. And there's so many examples of this, but this is why in places like Ephesians 4, we see that teachers, right? The gifted teachers, plural, are given to the church, plural, for the equipping and building up of individuals in the church. You see the language. That teachers, pastors, elders in particular, their primary job is to help the church better understand, interpret, and apply God's word to their lives, okay? So a a good teacher, elder, pastor proclaims God's word as to what it does say and what is true and also protects against false teaching and what it doesn't say and what isn't true. So it proclaims the good news and it points out the bad news that's out there. Everything's just kind of floating around. Um, Have you ever heard a sermon or podcast or just kind of like, Um, whoever your favorite kind of pastor or or teacher, Bible teacher is, and think, I've read that text hundreds of times and I never saw that. Why did I not pick that up in my my Devo this morning with my coffee for 15 minutes? Um, And what happens is when you you see that, you hear a Bible teacher like unpack uh, something and you're just kind of like, wow, like I, I didn't see that. I never would have seen that. And then you end up feeling defeated because you're like, what's the point? Like, why, why should I sit with the Bible if I'm never gonna see what they saw? But you forget that person probably just spent 20 to 30 hours unpacking those three verses, looking into all of the nerd level stuff, linguistics and context and history and all that stuff behind that, that you can't pull off in 20 minutes of your quiet time with your devotion, right? It's impossible. That's not what you're supposed to get. 
from that passage. That's not what you're supposed to get from that reading. But what you are supposed to get is that kind of reading and that kind of teaching in the context of community. Matt Smethurst says it best. Watch this. It's imperative, therefore, that we approach Scripture along, uh, alongside others in the context of a diverse community. Otherwise, our experiences will limit us, our preferences will govern us, and our biases will blind us. We desperately need other Christians, ideally those who are different from us, to function in our lives as both barrier setters and barrier removers, simultaneously keeping us from reading wrongly and freeing us to read wisely. I love that. I think he's right. That's exactly the picture that we see in the early church throughout the book of Acts. In, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see that the church actually devotes themselves to the apostles' teaching in community, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Those are all plural things done in community. All of those are done with others. None of those are done by themselves. Notice it doesn't say that the early church devoted themselves to quiet times and private devos and attending church services. That's a modern invention. That's not a biblical model for what it looks like to actually come to the Bible. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Personal, private devotions and meditation and prayer, very important, very important, but not more important than life lived and community. And when done well, personal, private devotion and study will actually contribute to the community. And they're, they're not kind of two things that are separate. They're actually intersecting things. Um, the example would be like any team sport, right? You think about any team sport, whether it's basketball, soccer, hockey, whatever it is. Why do you practice by yourself? Why do you practice on your own? Well, you practice on your own to develop, improve skills so that when it comes time to practice and play with your team, that you're actually ready, that you're an active contributor to the team. And if you're not practicing and you're not playing, you're probably not on the team. And if you are on the team and you're not practicing or playing, you're not going to be on the team very long, right? You're spectating from the stands, eating hot dogs and nachos, criticizing the players and the coaches. And so much of our churches are full of this kind of mentality. You have a role in this. You have a responsibility in this. As a follower of Jesus, you are commanded to do this. So just to double back on last week, the idea of wisdom, that there's an active component as we pursue wisdom. Colossians 3.16 says exactly this. Let the message of Christ dwell among you as you teach and admonish each other well with wisdom. Okay? When you heard you there, did you think me? Did you think personal, private, singular me, individual? Because that's not what the Greek is. It's actually plural both times. Listen to it again. Let the message of Christ dwell among you, plural, as you, plural, Teach and admonish each other with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. I just love that because we need each other. We need teachers, gifted, qualified teachers, for sure, to unpack and interpret. But then we need one another as we look at the lived experience of how we take God's word and change our lives. So if I can just stress it, get into community. Read the Bible in community. If that's in your city group, Continue to read your Bible. Start each, each time you get together with, with just a short passage together. Read it out loud together in community. If you're married, read with your spouse. Read with your husband or your wife. If you're single, get a few friends together who love Jesus and opens God's word and just, just read. 
pray, invite God into your time, and read God's word. He promises to not allow his word to go out and return to him void and do what he intended it to do. We must lean on that promise and we must do that in community. Last and finally, and then we're out of time. Read the Bible to worship well. Read the Bible to worship well. The proper response to God when we understand who he is. Good theology, good, good understanding of who God is leads to the right response and that is worship of that God. Good theology, understanding of who God is leads to good worship, proper worship in all of life. It rearranges the affections of our heart. It puts everything back in its place. It takes the disorder of sin and it reorders it and gives us peace and freedom and forgiveness and restoration. That's what God's word does. So the purpose of theology, the purpose of biblical interpretation, all of these technical things, these aren't just kind of like for, for the scholars. These are for you and me. Good theology leads to good worship. Good biblical interpretation leads us to see the good God that is revealed in the pages of scripture. And that is what stokes and fans into flame a love for God. That is what fuels mission. That is what fuels generosity and obedient living. That is what actually motivates us as individual followers of Jesus to go out and be a part of the church that is changing the world as salt and light. Only this. I love how the Apostle Paul says it in Romans 11. And by the way, after, after two of the most dense, probably theologically packed chapters in the whole Bible, okay, Paul's doing deep, deep, deep theology, deep technical theology. And then look what he comes out of on the other end of that. Watch this. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out and figuring out. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's what good theology does. Good theology leads us to worship. May this church be our response to God and his word as we see him more clearly. May this be every time we open the Bible personally, every time we come into community together, every time I get up and I teach to you and us that this would be our posture, that we would be looking at God's word to see God more clearly, to worship him well. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, we thank you that we can know you. We thank you that you made yourself knowable that you made yourself accessible. And not just that, but that you came and got us and rescued us when we turned to other things. That God, for us as followers of Jesus, that you would motivate in us, that you would create in us a heart that is desperately hungry for your word. That that would push us to prioritize and practice and push us beyond what we feel and where we are in our life, that we would prioritize this because we want and need you. And to those, Lord, who don't yet know you, I pray that it would be through your word that you show yourself strong to them, that you work in their heart, that spirit you would apply and convict and push these words that come from your mouth into their hearts so that it would shape their lives. We thank you for this whole series. We just ask that you would continue to use this to shape us into the church, plural, the community, the people that represent you well, flawed but true we love you we invite you into this and ask all these things for the glory in the name of your son jesus amen